the fans have to keep expressing in a very public way their disappointment with Radiohead. I realize that it's not enough to simply get justice for black people in this country if Palestinians aren't free in theirs, right? When you boycott, as in cut your relations of complicity, you're not doing a heroic act. You're fulfilling a very profound moral obligation to do no harm. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. In Oakland, I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. In a few moments, we'll go to a recent riveting conversation between Omar Barghouti, co-founder of the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, or BDS movement, and Niall Fort, a minister, organizer, and PhD student, as they discuss the parallel struggles for Palestinian liberation and black liberation. Stay tuned for that. But first, pressure is mounting on the UK-based band Radiohead to cancel their July gig in Tel Aviv. The campaign is also getting international press coverage as it grows. The major music magazine Pitchfork recently wrote that, quote, a number of artists and activists, including Thurston Moore, TV on the radio's Tunde Adabimpe, Young Fathers, Desmond Tutu, and Pink Floyd's Roger Waters have now signed an open letter asking Radiohead to think again about performing in Israel. In the letter, the artists write, quote, by playing in Israel, you'll be playing in a state where, UN rapporteurs say, a system of apartheid has been imposed on the Palestinian people. The letter closes, please do what artists did in South Africa's era of oppression. Stay away until apartheid is over. That's from the Artist Pledge on the Artists for Palestine UK website. So far, the band has not replied to requests for comment. Joining us to talk about the ongoing campaign is Jenny Morgan from Artists for Palestine UK. Jenny, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. It's a pleasure, Nora. Jenny, Radiohead, as I mentioned, is facing mounting calls to cancel their Tel Aviv show by other artists and countless activism groups. What has the response been so far from the band? Nora, we have had no uh, response from the band and all the journalists who responded to that open letter, who covered that open letter, who've approached the band and their management for comment, um, have been reporting that the band has no comment. Um, so there has been um, nothing directly. We had a fake email to our Artists for Palestine UK site from somebody calling himself Johnny Greenwood complaining about the letter, but um, that, was, that was a fake email. Um, we know that numbers of the people who signed that open letter have approached Radiohead privately. They've either worked with them in the past, they know the musicians. Um, they've approached Radiohead and they haven't got anywhere. They haven't managed to change the band's mind. And Roger Waters announced that, didn't he? Last week, um, he did an interview with the New York Times music critic and said on stage that he didn't think that they would change their minds. So it's disappointing. I'm sure they're weighing up what, what the fans' response is. I mean, if you look at their Facebook page, which I just did um, a little while ago, there are quite a lot of critical comments from fans appealing to them not to go. So they must be thinking about it. But so far, there's no public sign that they are, and they certainly haven't responded 
to the open letter, which was signed by some very big names in the music industry and in other artistic professions. So, yeah. um, and and you know, the the one concession maybe that they uh, have attempted, um, you know, amidst all of this uh, this campaigning and pressure against them, has been to you know to to really cynically book a, a so-called Jewish Arabic band, Dudu Tassa and the Kuwaitis, to open for them, ostensibly as a way to offset their commitment to the Tel Aviv show. Um, can you talk about, about that move by this band and, and, and why, why Radiohead would do that instead of respond directly to the pressure and, and, uh, and not cross the international picket line here? Well, I, you know, I really can't answer for Radiohead. They have to speak for themselves and as we're saying so far they've declined to do so I mean you're right to talk about the picket line can I just go back a few steps I think that um, the last the last time they were there was in the year 2000 that's the last time they performed in Israel and at that point the Palestinians had not issued a call for boycott there wasn't any kind of systematic sustained boycott campaign, it's entirely possible that they did not understand that the world had changed. You know, we live in the, the world of campaigning um, and we follow what's happening on the boycott campaign, but it's, it, could, is it possible? Is it possible that Radiohead didn't understand that it had now become really, as you say, a question of a picket line that since Packby issued that call? Um, it's a, it's a question of deciding, are you going to cross that picket line or are you not? So it's possible that they didn't understand that the situation had changed. I think as far as working with other musicians, they obviously like to work with other musicians. I think it's not only Duda Tassa and the Kuwaitis, isn't there? There's um, Shai Bensour as well, I think, is involved in the Tel Aviv mm -hmm. concert, and they seem to have been working with him for a bit. So that's fine. Uh, who, can, who can oppose the notion of broadening your scope, working with other musicians with different kinds of music? Iraqi Jewish music was fundamental, really, to Iraqi music. It goes back centuries. So nobody is saying that that's the point nobody is saying that there shouldn't be an Iraqi Jewish musician in the lineup the point is the lineup at all the point is the concert at all the point is that the concert is crossing the picket line and that's really the argument that we are making and nothing that's done mitigates that the concert itself crosses the picket line and it ought not to happen that's the voice of Jenny Morgan from Artists for Palestine UK. Um, well, talk a little bit more about that. How, how can you assess radio has, Radiohead's silence at a time when the BDS movement has never been more visible than it is now, when the band has, has proclaimed to be politically conscious itself? Do you think it's possible that, that they, as, as you, you, know, you pointed out, could just not know about the boycott movement? Um, you know, how, how can we assess that? Well, I think it is difficult to know what's inside their heads um, without them giving us any clue to what's inside their heads. I am sure that they are surprised by the disappointment that's being expressed both by fans and by 
former colleagues or or con- colleagues who are people who are working with them at the moment, I would guess that it's not pleasant to be on the receiving end of private um, pleas to you from people that you know in the music industry explaining to you why they think it's not a good idea to go. So I can imagine that there might be some measure of disarray. I'm not sure. I think the the fans' disappointment is a really key thing. Um, for instance, those fans who uh, were at the, bar- the concert in Berkeley and unfurled that banner, which said, we love you, Radiohead. Please don't play in apartheid Israel. You know, that's a heartfelt plea from the fans. And the disappointment that fans are expressing is is really palpable. Somebody on the Facebook page is saying, I don't want to have to not listen to your music. Please don't play this concert. So I would imagine that that has some effect but is it enough yet? I mean, I think the fans are the key at this point, and the fans have to keep expressing in a very public way their disappointment with Radiohead, who, as you say, are unlike the usual, I don't mean to be rude, but, but are unlike a lot of pop bands. They are known for having a political stance. They are known for thinking about serious issues. And so to find them not thinking about this or apparently not thinking about this is incredibly disappointing. Yeah, as, as a, a longtime Radiohead fan myself, it's, it's been um, nothing short of disappointing and, and just so much dismay at, at their apparent unwillingness to just, to, to even issue a statement um, mm. to, to tell their fans why they're ignoring mm. the BDS call and, and willing to cross the international picket line. Um, Jenny, how can people learn more about the campaign to pressure Radiohead and, uh, and, and what can people do at this point? Well, there are lots of organizations involved in campaigning on this. For instance, Jewish Voice for Peace has a petition which I really urge people to sign. Artists for Palestine UK, we have a very active Facebook page. We have a very a constantly updated website. You can get in touch with us, follow what, follow what we're doing. I think the fans need to keep making their views known. Radiohead are on tour. I think their next performance is in Norway. Um, and I can't remember exactly, but I know they're in the UK uh, at a certain point. These are opportunities for people to be saying to the band, what do you think you are doing? You are losing us. You are losing our support. And I think people have to keep saying that to the band and have to keep telling them that it's not something that you can ignore, the fact that Palestinians under occupation, in exile, are calling for a cultural boycott. This matters. And people, the band, have to understand that people want them to respect that call. Jenny Morgan from Artists for Palestine UK. You can go to their website at artistsforpalestine.org.uk. Jenny, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast, and hopefully we'll have uh, uh, some updates in this campaign as it goes along. I hope so. I do hope so, Nora. What you're saying about uh, a statement, yes. The yeah. band really need to think about that. They need to do it. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you, Jenny. 
And now the Electronic Intifada podcast is proud to present audio from a recent conversation about the struggle for Palestinian rights amidst increasing state repression, featuring the co-founder of the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement, Omar Barghouti, in conversation with Niall Fort. This event happened in New York City at Verso Books on April 25th. Omar Barghouti is a Palestinian human rights defender, co-founder of the Palestinian Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel, or PACBI, and the Palestinian-led Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement. Niall Fort is a minister, organizer, and PhD student at Princeton University. After supporting the growth of the movement for Black Lives in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, he went on a Dream Defenders delegation to Palestine. Barghouti and Fort were introduced by Rehan Barghouti of Adala, New York. Thank you so much to Jewish Voice for Peace for the use of this audio. We're so glad to have all of you here tonight, and it's really, for me, an honor and a privilege uh, to be introducing our two guests tonight. I think we can say that the Black Lives Matter movement and the Palestine Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement are arguably two of the most significant social justice struggles we are seeing in our time. How amazing is it for us to have with us tonight two men who have done so much in the service of these two struggles? Before I start my introductions, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. A very heartfelt thank you to Verso Books for making this space available. We do appreciate having this space, and it's great to have all of you here with us. Thanks to the Palestine Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions National Committee, Jewish Voice for Peace, Adel in New York, Tarab NYC, in Lace, Queers Against Israeli Apartheid, Hater Free NYC, Muslim Jewish Anti-Fascist Fascist Front, Jews Say No, and Parsio. So our first speaker today is Niall Fort. A minister, an organizer, and a scholar, he is a PhD student in religion and African American studies at Princeton University. He's widely known for his activism in Ferguson and as an advocate for the movement for black lives. He established Newark Books and Breakfast, which provide books and a meal to youth and their family. He travels nationally and internationally, intersecting various movements for freedom and civil rights. And Niall recently participated in the Dream Defenders delegation to Palestine in an effort to build solidarity between black and Palestinian freedom struggles. We also have Omar Barghouti with us. He's literally the man that wrote the book on boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Um, he's a founding member of the Palestine Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel and a co-founder of the BDS movement. And he's here in the U.S. as the co-recipient of the Gandhi Peace Award. Omar is like a lifesaver. The more Israel attempts to push him down, the higher he rises, lifting all of us along with him. And by attacking him, the only thing that Israel, the Israeli government has succeeded in doing is further tarnishing its own image and strengthening our resolve to redouble our efforts in support of the Palestinian struggle for self-determination, to end the occupation, equal rights for all, and the right of all Palestinian refugees to return to their homes. Please help me welcome Niall and Omar. Uh, 
How's everybody doing? Can y'all hear me? All right. Um, first, I just want to thank uh, JVP, and I want to thank everyone who organized this event. I am so honored, and I am so nervous. Um, and so I just want to admit that. But we're family here, right? We can make me feel a little less nervous. I'm nervous partially because I am sitting next to um, someone who I admire and revere, someone who I met about a year ago in Palestine and was blown away by his not only uh, sort of wisdom, but his commitment, um, which was so evident in the way that he spoke to us with such generosity. Um, so not only is he someone who represents a sort of giant to me, but he's someone who seems to be a really good person. Um, and I just really appreciate that. So I'm going to give a few remarks, and then I'm going to get out the way so that Omar can do his thing, and then we'll ask, our, ask each other some questions. So I first would like to tell a little bit of a story and then end with three points around black and Palestinian solidarity. So why did I go to Ferguson? I had just graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary in May of 2014. Um, we had already witnessed the police killings of several African-Americans or black people in this country. Trayvon Martin, on and on and on. We can go down the line. I graduated in May of 2014, and in August, on August 9, 2014, you know the story. A white police officer by the name of Darren Wilson shot and killed an unarmed black teenager by the name of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. And this had come on the heels of so many other uh, instances of police violences. So it was not an anomaly. It was not something that came out of nowhere, but it was something that was contextualized within a larger pattern, a systemic pattern of police violence and racist violence against not only black communities, but brown communities and poor communities throughout the country. So I had just graduated, and I considered myself a freedom fighter. Um, and I was honestly mad as hell. I decided I would apply to PhD programs, but I couldn't hardly sit in my seat to apply. Because every time I would turn on the television or open up my Twitter or my Facebook, there was another hashtag. It's another person who looked like me or similar to me or lived in a neighborhood like me who didn't make it back home, who we know only because they were killed by a police officer. So I wanted to do something about this. I knew that getting a PhD or going into academia wouldn't save us. I was doing it to try to get some resources so I can fight the fight, but I knew that I had to do more. So I hopped on a bus from, Fer from New York City to Ferguson with several other activists. And it was in Ferguson that I really learned, um, I, I kind of call it getting a crash course in organizing. I learned the difference between national organizing and local organizing. I learned the difference between a hierarchical approach to organizing and a more horizontal approach to organizing. Um, I learned the difference between social media activism and commu grassroots community organizing. Some of this I hope we can sort of dig into later in the talk. And the second time I went to Ferguson, this was during Ferguson October, first time I went was in August, uh, I intentionally missed my plane back home because I just knew that the revolution had come. And so I said, I'm not getting on that flight. I'm going to stay right here and I'm going to organize every day and this is it. Um, and it was really um, in that moment that I learned the importance of relationships because 
I realized that after I stayed and the cameras left, that that's when I had the opportunity to actually build relationships with activists in the community, the local community there in Ferguson. And that was something that I learned in my organizing experience that was really important. The other thing that I learned was that there was this struggle going on in Palestine. And so I was out in the streets protesting, and several of us were experiencing tear gas and trying to figure out what to do about it. And we were getting tweets from Palestinian youth activists showing us how to respond to the tear gas. I went back to my local community and started organizing, and I never forgot about Palestine. Palestine became central to the way I thought about justice because I realized that it's not enough to simply get justice for black people in this country if Palestinians aren't free in theirs, right? And so Palestine became a central way for me to think about freedom, and I ended up going on a delegation with the Dream Defenders, the second delegation to Palestine. And so why did I go to Palestine? So as I told you the story, there's a lot of talk about Palestinian youth activists teaching Ferguson protesters how to respond to tear gas. And that's true, right? Um, we were getting tweets. We were figuring out you know, that we had to get milk. We had to put it on our eyes. It would stop the burning. But I think that story sometimes uh, hides from view something else that's really important in terms of the connection between uh, activists in Palestine and protesters not only in Ferguson but throughout the country. And what it hides is a, long, a longer, broader tradition of resistance that we share, black people in this country and Palestinians um, and theirs. And so I want to talk about three things um, today that have to do with black and Palestinian solidarity. Before I do that, I want to also mention that in, on August 1st, 2015, the Movement for Black Lives dropped their policy platform. Anybody hear about the policy platform or read it? And the policy platform received a lot of backlash, partially because it named uh, Israel a apartheid state, and it also um, called Israeli oppression a form of genocide. And a lot of the backlash, as we know, came from Jewish Zionists. But that wasn't the only community that the backlash came from. There was also backlash within the black community itself. And so... I'm a minister as well, and so a part of what happened after the movement for Black Lives dropped the policy platform was a critique from black pastors and black Christians. Uh, one particular group of nine black pastors in Missouri, for example, released a statement uh, indicting the movement for black lives for supporting Palestinians. And I think that this is important because it tells a more complicated story of what we're up against and that even within the movement for black lives, and even within black communities, we are also experiencing, right, backlash to our own liberation struggle. Um, so let me end with this. What of black and Palestinian solidarity? I want to talk about three things. The first is that I think it's important that our solidarity be rooted in our common resistance and not in our common oppression and our common resistance and not in our common oppression. I think that for two reasons. One is this. Oftentimes when we think about oppression, we think about what we might call spectacular violence. The things that we get mediated to us through Facebook, through corporate media, um, when there are airstrikes, when a black boy is killed by a police officer, 
sort of very obvious, spectacular examples of oppression that you can easily point to and say, that's wrong. And what happens is, is when we build solidarity around our common oppression rather than our common resistance, we end up responding to these moments of spectacular violence without recognizing that it's actually connected to a longer, more everyday insidious pattern of oppression that people are dealing with in the US, black people and other people and Palestinians in their uh, context and community. And so I think it's really important that we realize that our solidarity must be built off of common resistance. The other reason is that if our solidarity is simply built off of common oppression and not common res resistance, then people who are not commonly oppressed with this other group cannot join the movement. And of course, I think BDS is a great example of a, not simply a campaign, but really a movement that allows for all different kinds of people with all different kinds of identity to join the movement. So that's number one. I think we need to create solidarity around our common resistance and not our common oppression. Yes, I went to Palestine because Palestinian youth taught me about tear gas, and I appreciate that. But I went more importantly because I believe that black organizers and Palestinian activists have the capacity to invent the future. I believe in this long tradition from uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, from Malcolm X, who wrote an essay on Zionist logic from George Schleyer, right? A long traditions of black resistance um, that have rooted our solidarity and not simply uh, what we're up against, but what we can do about what we're up against. The second thing is, of course, um, and I don't have to preach to the choir, we have an obligation to do something about Palestine because we're directly implicated in it. What's happening in Palestine cannot happen without the backing, the assistance financially and politically of the U.S. government, right? All the way down to our very own tax dollars. And so I think it's important for us to realize that although it's happening seemingly far away from us, um, it's our very own complicity in um, what's happening there that is also a part of what we're struggling against. I'll tell a quick story when I was on the delegation with the Dream Defenders, we were trying to go through a checkpoint. And one of our, actually our tour guide wasn't able to get through the checkpoint um, because he didn't have the proper documents, a Palestinian. And there was an Israeli settler who was there being very confrontational with us. And in the middle of this confrontation, um, I mean, he had like big old guns on him. Um, and was sort of just being very, very confrontational. In the midst of the confrontation, he looked at us and he said, thank you, thank you. And I just looked at him and said, what, is, what are you talking about? And he said, thank you, because none of this could have happened without you, without your support, without your complicity. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And the question is, how do we respond to that? What is our obligation to what's happening in Palestine? Not considering just simply what's happening to them, but how we are complicit in that oppression. And lastly, um, I just want to emphasize that the tradition that I am rooted in and come out of, the black radical tradition and the black prophetic tradition, has always been a, a relentless and courageous critique about injustice across the board. So that means Palestine, but that also means Standing Rock. That also means what's happening in Syria. That also means what's happening in Libya. That also means what ha what's happened and is happening in Flint, right? And so I want us to also think about 
black and Palestinian solidarity and a larger, broader solidarity that includes people who are uh, fighting crises um, across the country. And so with that said, I'm just going to end that and let Omar go. Uh, thanks so much to all the organizers for having me with you today. Thanks to Niall for uh, joining this very important discussion, which I'm honored to be part of. Um, rather than give my BDS 101, I assume a, a lot of you have heard that, I will uh, address three different issues related to what we do in the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement for Palestinian lives. Specifically, I'll ask three questions that uh, um, I want to focus on. The first question, which I think Niall has answered largely, is why should Americans care? You have enough problems on your own. You have a president that's giving you every day problems that you have to deal with. <laughs> why would you even care about Palestine thousands of miles uh, away? And I think uh, Niall touched on a very important issue, which is the issue of complicity. Uh, complicity engenders moral responsibility to act. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, um, defined boycotts at a very basic level as withdrawing cooperation from an evil system. When you think about that, it's nothing heroic. When you boycott, as in cut your relations of complicity, you're not doing a heroic act. You're fulfilling a very profound moral obligation to do no harm. If your tax money is doing harm, as it is, it is our oppression has made in the USA written all over it, Israel's regime of occupation, settler colonialism, and apartheid wouldn't survive a year without the massive military, economic, financial, diplomatic, academic support it gets from the United States. But you're not exactly living in a perfect democracy where you control where your tax money is going. You're descending into a plutocracy very, very fast, as you know more than I. So you don't have much control over your tax money and how it's being spent. True. But then you have the power to offset the, the damage, the harm that your tax money is doing by doing something positive to cut the links of complicity academic links, cultural links, economic links of complicity that are within your control. Your institutions, your schools, your universities, your churches, uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, um, cutting relations of complicity is an obligation. It's not uh, uh, an altruistic or heroic act. So that's a very important uh, point. But another, on another issue related to this question, why should Americans care? Uh, uh, I very much agree with Niall about the common resistance, that it's not enough to explore the common oppressions, the intersectionality of oppressions, uh, the gender and racial and economic and social oppressions uh, and so on. It's very, very important to, to point to that, but it's even more important to try to explore the common ground for resistance. And that's very, very difficult because it's not a transactional opportunistic relationship. You rub my back and I rub yours. Uh, uh, we do that, but that's not enough. That's not enough. So you come to our demonstration and we'll come to yours. Okay, that's transactional. That's very basic. That doesn't help to build resistance, common resistance. Well, the other side is doing much more than that. So we'd better 
act up. I mean, the, the far right is rising across the world, becoming more unified than ever in their discourse. In Europe, just weeks ago, a couple of months ago, they had a major, the first major uh, uh, conference of the far-right movements from Marine Le Pen to the Freedom Party to Geert Wilders in the Netherlands, all the proto-fascist, neo-fascist parties getting together in Europe, uniting on a far-right platform. And with Trump in the leadership of this country, this far-right now has an even bigger address, the United States. Uh, so they're working very much in unison uh, developing this, this uh, far-right uh, leadership of the world, we'd better do much more than just you come to my demo and I come to yours. Uh, uh, we need to do a lot more to build a common resistance to this far-right, a common front, a united front uh, that emerges across the world that truly, organically, connects our struggles. So when we resist injustice, uh, uh, um, in, 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 in the United States, especially against young people of color, as is happening in the mass incarceration system, uh, by police brutality and so on, we're not doing it just to be nice, to feel good about ourselves, but because we really believe that resisting this injustice is resisting all injustice. It's related to resisting injustice in Palestine. Um, I said this before, and I'll repeat it here. When I went to school here at Columbia University, I was an engineering student. No one was perfect. Um, <laughs> but I, I participated in the, in the anti-apartheid, South African anti-apartheid movement. And when my fellow engineering students would see me holding the sign, abolish apartheid, one of them asked me, uh, do you really believe that apartheid would be abolished in your lifetime? I mean, why are you wasting your time? You're an engineer, for God's sake. So I said, well, I don't believe it, it will be abol abolished in my lifetime, but I'm doing it out of a moral obligation. But it was abolished in my lifetime. And this gives us eternal hope. So it's extremely important to really organically connect our struggles for black justice, for Latinos, for the feminist movement, LGBTQI, the climate change, and so on and so forth. It's very important to connect them. The second question is, uh, how can we refute arguably the still most formidable weapon wielded against the BDS movement by Israel and its lobby groups, that is the anti-Semitism charge? Uh, whenever we think that it's going away, that it's losing its power of intimidation, we see it come back with passion, especially in, in, in this country. And they're using it more repressively than ever. They're trying to pass laws to redefine anti-Semitism and to use it to suppress Palestinian voices, to suppress voices of solidarity, uh, um, and to censor uh, free speech, uh, basically. What do we do about that? Um, I've argued, I, I won't present it here, but in the new book published by uh, JVP on anti-Semitism, I have a chapter in that book where I developed some of my thoughts on how we combat this new anti-Semitism definition, which includes criticism of Israel, anti-Zionism, calling for a boycott of Israel. They've included all this within this new anti-Semitism definition. I argue in that essay that this very new definition is anti-Semitic. Uh, by conflating Israel with all Jews, by saying that an attack on Israel, a call for boycotting Israel, is a boycott of all Jews and is therefore anti-Semitic, you're making an anti-Semitic statement. By putting all Jewish persons in one monolithic basket, 
you're making an anti-Semitic statement. So Israel is deeply, deeply invested in promoting anti-Semitism by pushing this new definition of anti-Semitism. And if we study the history of Zionism, it's nothing new. Zionism was deeply invested in promoting anti-Semitism and in using anti-Semitism as far back as the 1930s uh, to push for Jewish immigration to Palestine. Assimilation was considered by Zionists a complete sin. Assimilation was considered a betrayal of their uh, ideology. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll keep it at that, but I wanted to end this point with a, a very important point. Since there's nothing uh, 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 Jewish about Israel's regime of occupation, settler colonialism, and apartheid, there's nothing inherently anti-Jewish in opposing that regime. But we also must be very vigilant uh, uh, against any attempts to infiltrate our movement, our movements uh, by truly anti-Jewish uh, individuals, anti-Jewish speech, anti-Jewish racism of any sort. We have to be vigilant uh, uh, about that and really be very clear that we distance ourselves from any anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish uh, uh, sentiments, statements, or actions. The third and last point I want to ask is, given all the Israeli war against the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, since 2014, they've launched an all-out war uh, um, using their intelligence services, the Mossad, the Shabak, military intelligence. Uh, uh, tens of millions of dollars were invested in fighting BDS, threatening us with targeted assassination, civil assassination, uh, um, travel bans, and so on and so forth. Is it all worth it? That's the question. Is it all worth it? Um, and I, I thought about this question uh, in, a, in a slightly personal way, which I rarely do, but so many people told, us, told me, can you share a personal story? So I will, for the first time ever. <laughs> uh, when my two daughters, our two daughters, my wife is here with me from Palestine, Safa. <laughs> Uh, and Safa is not just my partner, she's my best friend and a very important inspiration. When our two daughters, uh, Jana and Nay, first heard about the threats by several, uh, several Israeli government ministers against me, especially the daunting threat of civil assassination, our two daughters were horrified. The younger one engaged me in a WhatsApp conversation, which I'll share with you. <laughs> Her name is Nay. So now I wrote, I'm just sitting there watching it all and feeling paralyzed. So I replied, that's what they want, to see us sit idly and do nothing. So she wrote, you're the most peaceful person on earth. How could they threaten you like that with civil assassination? I think I'm having a split personality here. On the one hand, she wrote, as a Palestinian, I'm so proud of you. But as your daughter... I wish you would just consider stopping what you do. Enough. And she continued, I know it is selfish of me, and it is impossible for me to accept that you just stop your human rights work, but you're my father first and foremost, and maybe you're my father more than Palestine is my homeland. And then she immediately added, I know this is stupid of me to say. 
And then she, I replied, you know that I shall never submit to their threats and live as a servile slave. I'd rather die than live like that. So she wrote, I know this is the first lesson I ever learned from you. So I wrote, we have to besiege their siege, not surrender to it. To which she replied, you have chosen the more difficult path that has the potential to change history. This is all, there's always a price to be paid. I realize, so what can I do to help? A year later, this year, in March, Nay was the main performer at the opening uh, um, uh, concert of the Israeli Apartheid Week in, in Palestine, so she's discovering her own way of resistance. Thank you. So I'm going to take the uh, privilege of asking Omar two questions, and then I think he's going to ask me a couple. So my first question, one of the reasons BDS has been so successful is because of its ability to forge solidarity across identity, race, religion, nationality, class, gender, sexuality, etc. And one of the major discourses in the movement for black lives is intersectionality, which calls activists to pay particular attention to identity and the ways in which those at the margins of the margins are oppressed. But this at least in practice, poses a challenge. So how do we as freedom fighters both pay particular attention to the politics of identity and build solidarity across and beyond it, beyond identity? In other words, how might a principled and strategic intersectional solidarity look like? Not the easiest question on earth. <laughs> um, I'll try my best uh, to answer it, although um, I do not have a 100% sharp, clear answer. Uh, I think there's a tension there that is not easy to address. Um, identity politics, as is prevalent in the United States, including among progressive movements, um, presents major concerns to us outside the US. We don't know how to deal with it. Uh, uh, People, activists in this country assume this is universal. It's not. It's very much a US thing that we from afar, I lived in this country, but now have, having lived in Palestine since 1993, I look at it with a very different eye. And we don't completely understand it. But one thing we do understand is that there's a tension between the identity politics as, in, as understood in the US and uh, forging uh, multiracial, uh, multifaceted justice movements that bring everyone uh, together. And the point is, if I feel that I can only work within my community, and, uh, and that's the, the most important part because I am belonging to this community, uh, it will in a way deter me from doing work in other places where I can be very influential not just helping other communities, but bridging, bridging the justice uh, movements together. So in other words, I think if we put identity politics ahead of the requirements to be um, uh, uh, intersectional and to connect to other struggles, we, har we harm ourselves, our cause, as well as other causes. 
uh, and that's dangerous. The second point is that if I consider anyone from my tribe as good enough because they're from my tribe, it's really problematic because many people in my tribe stink. <laughs> and I need to come out against them. And not everyone who attacks someone from my tribe is necessarily wrong or racist because some people in my tribe stink. So uh, uh, w w with this recognition, uh, um, I understand the intersectionality differently, and I understand work within my community as not work that assumes everyone is fine and dandy and, and happy together. There's a lot of internal uh, uh, struggle as well. Um, second question. So something I've been meditating on lately is imagination. Resistance is important, but it's not enough. What does imagining freedom look like for you? One way to think about it could be, how does BDS, and maybe I can speak a little bit to the movement for black lives, um, how does it articulate not only what we're fighting against, but what we're fighting for? How might BDS be seen as, a, as an example of radical imagination incarnate, given flesh? And in that sense, why is it so important to dream in the midst of nightmarish conditions? Hmm. Um. I agree with you that it's not enough to know what we are resisting, what we're fighting against. It's extremely important to know what we're aspiring to achieve. Absolutely. Um, otherwise, we are reactive. Uh, uh, we do not build a better future just by reacting uh, to injustices. Uh, we might repeat the injustice if we do that. So uh, uh, slaves who've overcome their masters without considering what a life of freedom might look like might become their own masters of yet other slaves, and so on and so forth. Uh, 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 rape victims becoming rapists, and so on and so forth. Without envisioning a different uh, future, it's, it's very difficult. And this connects, actually, to a question that I wanted to ask you. Uh, so I'll, I'll make this connection now, because I think it's, it's important that, uh, um, that we transcend our status as victims and start envisioning what life beyond victimness looks like. But the challenge is, what if our minds are colonized? We can't even envision that freedom. So you're asking me, uh, uh, what is your vision of the future if my mind is colonized after, after decades of oppression and the colonizer feeding me, searing into my consciousness that I am not a full human being, I'm a relative human that doesn't deserve full rights, and then I internalize that and I really start believing that I am not a full human being, I cannot even start to imagine what life of justice looks like. How do you want me to do that? What, what, is the, what is the process that is needed to help me decolonize my mind so that I can envision this freedom? And then that would uh, 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 shape my resistance. Because without that vision, my resistance is just reactive activism, and it's not reflective activism that can lead to an ethical uh, uh, situation beyond injustice. So I wanted to ask you that. How... <laughs> How do you deal with this tension that colonized minds cannot possibly envision a future beyond oppression, yet if they cannot envision a future beyond oppression, their resistance is doomed to be extremely reactive and therefore not very successful? Wow. So um, 
Um, anybody else want to take a step? <laughs> well, I, I think I start with, uh, I, go, I go to Fanon, and I go to Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. And so, you know, Fanon is oftentimes cited as sort of his first chapter on, on violence, right? We go to Fanon to talk about uh, the legitimacy of violent struggle against uh, colonial regimes. Um, but when we reduce Fanon and his uh, magisterial work of Wretched of the Earth to just that, I think we miss out on one of the major interventions that Fanon uh, teaches us, and that is um, that the process of decolonialization is not merely a process of decol decolonizing society, but also of decolonizing ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And so the two go hand in hand. Um, and so I'm oftentimes kind of thinking about what does it mean to not only transform the world, to transform society, to transform the conditions that we're up against, but what does it mean to transform ourselves and what does that relationship look like? And I'm under the fundamental belief that the only way that we can transform ourselves is by transforming the world. And the only way that we can transform the world is by transforming ourselves. It's a dialectic that we can't get out of. Mm -hmm. And so I oftentimes in thinking about what does it mean, right, for activists and freedom fighters who are talking about freedom to be mean as hell? Hmm. Hmm. What does it mean for radicalism to become a sort of way of simply giving sharp critiques but not giving love? Hmm. What does it mean to have all the right politics, to be able to quote all the right revolutionaries but not to have any kind of joy, not to have any kind of thing that would make people want to come to your movement meeting? And so I think that we oftentimes, sometimes on the left, we, we, we act like personal transformation is just some sort of thing of the right, right? And we've let the right have a monopoly on values and principles and what it means to be a good person. And then we sometimes throw away people who don't have all the right politics. Mm. And I always say, well, dang, if the, the stakes are that high, then my mama can't come to this movement meeting because she don't got it all right. Mm. We claim to fight for black lives, but it can't just be the black lives who navigated certain elite institutions and have all the right language. So, so yeah, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of interested in what this means, and I, I also want to just make a brief point about neoliberalism. We talk a lot about neoliberalism, but it's, neoliberalism is not merely a set of economic arrangements that came out of the University of Chicago School with Milton Freedom and made sort of Latin American models throughout um, you know, South America and Latin America, but it's also a profound cultural force that puts everything and everyone up for sale, even our movements. So we compete over funding. We talk about branding. Activists who never met in real life fall out on Twitter. It becomes very difficult to tell the difference between the market and the movement. And so I think we have to really consider what does it mean to resist neoliberal politicians without resisting neoliberal values? What does it mean to resist oppression, right, um, outside of us without doing the work that Baldwin teaches us to, that self-examination that's always a part of revolutionary struggle? Mm -hmm. so. Great. Um, okay, so my second question to you. So my second question to you is that with Trump, the U.S. has entered a new aggressive phase in its descent to plutocracy or worse. This will cause even more unbearable suffering to many around the world, to 
Palestinians, many others, and to the most marginalized communities in this country, especially communities of color. How can progressive movements like the Movement for Black Lives deal with the sometimes competing agendas of organizing, mobilizing, and empowering the black community, especially the young, on the one hand, and forging strong alliances with other struggles and other movements with their diverse agendas? Um, I think first we have to recognize how difficult it is. Um, and that's not just sort of um, to get around the question, it's to sort of, you know, some of this can sound really good and how we talk about it, but what it looks like in real life. When I, went, when I came from Ferguson to organize locally in Newark, New Jersey, which has a really strong hub of black nationalism, um, and a lot of the organizers and activists, um, you know, are still sort of thinking through what gender politics look like, what sexuality politics look like. Um, but these are the folks that are there doing a lot of the work. And so what does it mean to sort of um, recognize the, the sheer challenge that if you're actually organizing with real people, right, from a variety of different places, that you're going to be having to really struggle with people and struggle with yourself and, and kind of grow in that relationship. Um, I think the other thing is that we have to reject a really bad form of identity politics, as you sort of talked about. And so I always like to say that identity, is it ought to be an entrance, but it shouldn't be an end. Um, what happens is, is when identity becomes an end in and of itself, then we get stuck. That's what Fanon was telling us to get around. We have to have a more revolutionary politic. That is something that takes identity seriously, but is able to move beyond simply the politics of identity. And so I always say that I became an activist because I'm black. And because when I walked out on outside of my street in Newark, New Jersey, I was being harassed by police. When I walked on the campus of Princeton University, I was being harassed by police. I became an activist because I'm black but I didn't stay an activist because I'm black. Mm. That's why I went to Palestine. So what does it mean to take identity seriously, right? Not, not become the folks who go, let's just forget about that identity stuff. Yeah, it just kind of mm. messes mm. everything up. Mm. We need to think about unity, right? And sort of bypass the very particular struggles of what it means, not only for black people, but for black women, for, but for trans black women, right? For particularity, people at the margins of the margins. What does it mean to take that seriously? But what does it mean not to get stuck there, to try to build a solidarity through that? I think it's very, very difficult. I think a part of what we have to do is have a solidarity that's both strategic and soulful. Hmm. The strategic part is, what do we agree on that we can work around and work on the other stuff that we don't agree on? Hmm. So it's not say, I don't care about the stuff we don't agree on, because that stuff's important too. But how do we sort of think about areas that we share common interests and do an organizing work around that? and work on, have open debate and dialogue about the other stuff. I do think that this is partially dangerous, and this is why I say we have to struggle through the other stuff, because politics is also not reducible to ends. What I mean by that is, if politics were reducible to ends, then Michelle Alexander and Newt Gingrich would share the same politics, because they both want to end mass incarceration. Hmm. But decarceration to save money and decarceration to save lives are not the same thing. So yes, I think we have to have a solidarity that's strategic, but we can't be in solidarity with anybody simply because we share the same. So Absolutely. I'm trying to give a complicated account. The other thing is that I think the solidarity needs to be soulful. It needs to be a soul craft. That is, it should be rooted in relationships. But it also means that we cannot bring all our identities on the table in every campaign we do. Otherwise, we cannot progress. If on every justice campaign we insist on bringing all our identities, 
that a campaign against a bank X should address the trans issue, the gender issue, the racial issue, and so on, all in one campaign, we might fail. And then we get nowhere. So I can address the intersectionality of the oppressions in multiple campaigns. But if I insist that all of them must be addressed in every single campaign, we cannot move forward. So that's the strategic aspect that we have to consider, and I fully agree with you, that we cannot put identity aside, but we cannot put identity ahead of everything strategic as well. They have to go hand in hand. And I want to end on a note, because you mentioned the joy in the, in the movement, the, the soul in the movement. So I, I, I read this in my talk yesterday at Columbia, and I'll repeat it here because it addresses that. Uh, I said the great Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish once wrote that he wished he could, he could be liberated from Palestine so he could write poems of love, life, and mundane topics. But as long as Palestine is not liberated, Darwish said, he had no choice but to write about Palestine. Inspired by Darwish, I personally have a deep desire to end my BDS activism. Indeed, to see the BDS movement come to an end. But for that to happen, we need to attain our freedom, justice, and equality first. When, not if, that happens, I'll be exhilarated, I wrote, to redirect my deep passion for human rights to other struggles that I'm particularly passionate about, especially the struggle by blacks for racial and economic justice and the struggle of indigenous communities around the world for reparations. When, not if, we attain our comprehensive rights, I'll be delighted to fulfill my other passions in life, especially philosophy and choreography. <laughs> but until then, I have no choice but to continue my contribution to this most noble struggle for a life that is worth living, as Darwish puts it, and that can only be a life under freedom, justice, and equality. Thank you. With that, um, I'd like to sincerely thank Niall and Omar for joining us tonight, for sharing, for sharing their insight, their humor, their humanity, their knowledge, for hopefully helping us all to begin to continue our work to decolonize our minds. Um, I would like to encourage everyone to look at some of the different organizations that are here in New York. Uh, Palestine Legal that's working on the Right to BDS campaign, Adela New York, Jewish Voice for Peace, Code Bing, Students for Justice in Palestine. There's a number of organizations that are active here in New York where you can find some place to start now that you're all inspired to start working on the BDS movement. I want to once again thank Verso Books uh, and Jewish Voice for Peace for organizing this, and thank you all for braving the rain and the, rain and the wind. Thank you. That was a conversation between Omar Barghouti, co-founder of the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, and Niall Fort, a minister, organizer, and scholar at Princeton University. Thank you to Jewish Voice for Peace for the use of their audio. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. For news, information, cultural features, and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on iTunes, support the Electronic Intifada podcast by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>